Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Glad to be here. Excited, very excited about today's episode. Not to say that I'm ever not excited about an episode, but I don't know. There are definitely a few favorites. There have been a few favorites over the year. Haven't recorded this one yet, but I feel like it might be one of those. I'm trying to be a little more casual um, and comfortable, I guess is the right word, in doing more solo episodes. It's quite difficult sometimes to record with a guest, especially remotely when we're in all these different places around the world, never really knowing what the Wi-Fi is. And I've recorded some episodes with like really amazing people with really shitty Wi-Fi and it just sucks so badly. Um, And you guys always write me saying you love my intros and love the solo episodes. And I always feel like it's a bit self-indulgent to sit in front of a microphone and talk for an hour. Um, But it's definitely a lot easier to do, especially when traveling. And uh, I've grown to really like the solo episodes. It really feels like a space for me to be super creative and put together something that's important to me that, you know, is too long or involved to do in an intro. So might see more of these from me over the next however many months into the future. Um, Of course, there will still be interviews. I have a couple in the bank that I'm really excited to release over the next couple few weeks, months. I don't really know what time is. I'm in Tanzania, so I also don't really know like what location is. It's becoming a little absurd each time I get on the microphone announcing a new location. Um, But yeah, I'm in Tanzania right now in a Marriott hotel in Dar es Salaam. And there's so many like weird oxymoronic things happening. I feel like just being in Africa. I've never been to Africa before. So this is the first time in being in a city, this is where we landed and we just parked here for a few days so that we had reliable internet before we go off to um, places without so much service. I don't know, but it's just weird. It's weird being in Africa in a city, just like the juxtaposition between, you know, what feels like the not so distant indigenous hunter-gatherer past and modernity and civilization and capitalism. It's just, it just like hits you it's hitting me very hard in the face, in the brain, in the heart. Um, It's strange and upsetting. So I'm sure I'll have more thoughts on that in the future, but that is not what today's episode is about. Today's episode is, um, what is today's episode about? Today's episode is about power and shadow and really like the realm of healing. And I've talked about a lot of these different 
um, topics before in the podcast. If you've listened uh, to the podcast for a long time, you know I'm sort of obsessed with like power dynamics and spirituality and psychological, personal, and collective shadow, especially when all of these things are tied up into one little neat little package. Um, So speaking about like leaders in the spiritual industry or spiritual leaders or gurus, it's just something I've always been fascinated about. And I've definitely talked about and tackled both on my own and through conversation on the podcast before. Um, But this uh, podcast, I think, is definitely kind of like a conglomeration um, of a lot of my ongoing thoughts over the past couple of years. And it's so fascinating. Like, I feel like at some point I want to go back to the beginning of the podcast and like listen to it all the way through to see how my feelings have evolved about so many different topics. Like this podcast has existed since late 2018, so we're like three and a half years into it. And you're just on a journey with me, a journey of my own curiosity and my own exploration and my own growth and my own reevaluation. Um, so it's always sort of interesting to think about like where I was with something at the very beginning of stages of exploring a topic and then where I've, where I've gotten with, with something. And I think this is a topic that will interest me for a long time. I don't think I have the answers. In fact, I think this episode will be a lot of questions, um, as is my style. Uh, but still, I feel like I've, I've had some epiphanies around it. So I'm really excited to share those with you. So this episode was first inspired by listening to a podcast called Cover Story, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard. If you haven't, I recommend it. It's available um, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, it's hosted by a few different people, uh, Io Tillett Wright and Lily K. Ross. And I think there's going to be another season of it coming out, but the first season was in two parts and it's all released now. And I sort of manically listened to the whole thing. I'd heard about it um, for a while and I honestly avoided it um, because I knew it would be incredibly triggering for me, (laughs) which it was, Um, but I just knew that I had to listen to it. So I finally did. And it is super interesting and it talks about it sort of gives multiple different accounts from multiple multiple different angles, exploring the realm of psychedelic healing and psychedelic therapy. And it's hosted by people who were or are very knee-deep in the industry. So I'm sure, as a lot of you have heard, um, there is a large push to legalize psychedelic therapy in various forms, especially right now MDMA through MAPS, um, but also ketamine and psilocybin, etc., And of course, with anything, because all things in the universe have, you know, healthy and shadow expressions, of course, any type of healing, especially psychedelic healing, or not especially, just including psychedelic healing, um, and psychedelics themselves have both a positive and a negative pull. That's how things work. Um, But it's very tricky when you're pushing for the legalization of something or you're pushing, pushing for acceptance of something like psychedelics, you know, like marijuana, like gay marriage, like trans rights, right? All of these things that we're pushing for that have been historically unaccepted and historically taboo and or, and or historically illegal. It's very, very difficult to speak about the risks associated with those things or the questions we have about those things or the critiques we have about those things, even if they're totally reasonable and just trying to kind of 
you know, ask questions to explore the nuance of something, it's very difficult to do that when you're pushing for acceptance or legalization, obviously, because if you're taking something that has been demonized and culturally taboo, you often need to kind of put it up on a pedestal and say, this is the best thing that ever existed in the entire world in order for it to be accepted by the culture. Because if you start to say, this is the best thing ever that should be accepted by the entire world, except this major problem, and there's that problem, and we haven't really thought about this, and there's this risk over here, you're just like opening up all these vulnerabilities. And this is true for everything. And it's frustrating. I mean, I think we saw a lot of this in, you know, the the conversation and the push push for COVID vaccines. Um, I think we see this in the realm of like vegetarians feeling like they need, or vegans feeling like they need to over defend their position because they're so demonized when maybe there are legitimate questions to be had about whether that's the best diet for your health or for the environment. Same goes with non-monogamy. That's a taboo, an unaccepted form of relating. And so a lot of people who are non-monogamous go up on pedestals and say it's the best kind of relationship ever and there are no problems with it and that's ridiculous and there are just as many problems with non-monogamous relationships as there are with monogamous relationships. They may just look different, but there is no such thing as a perfect relationship or a perfect form of therapy or a perfect drug or anything like that. Um, So... To the credit of these hosts, they have decided to take up the job or the responsibility of questioning the growing popularity and, um, yeah, the growing popularity of the psychedelic movement, but more specifically the psychedelic therapy push and movement. And I think a lot of people will dismiss this concept and idea right off the bat by saying what I just said, which is like, this is not the time to critique this. This is not the time to question this because we really want psychedelic drugs to become um, controlled or legalized, especially for use in therapy. I think a lot of us understand that these drugs like marijuana um, can have therapeutic effects, can have healing effects if administered in the right context with the right people in the right setting and all this stuff. Um, so people will dismiss it right off the bat to be like, this is not the time to critique those things, which I take issue with. Um, I understand that point, And I think I've probably felt similarly with various things. I think I've grown up a little bit. I think I probably used to be very triggered when people would you know, question things around non-monogamy, for example, um, even gay marriage. Although I have to say I was pretty open-minded about that from the beginning. I remember my a book that I talk about on the show a lot. My dad gave me this book called The Trouble with Normal when I was really, really young. I don't know, I was like 13, 14, which I guess is pretty young. My dad's gay, and he gave me this book written by a gay man called The Trouble with Normal. Amazing book. It's out of print now, but if you can find a used copy of it, I recommend it. Um, But it was basically a gay man arguing against gay marriage. And this was like in the, I don't know, maybe late 90s, perhaps, early 2000s. And his point was like, look, um, gay people have been, um, you know, excluded from mainstream and conventional society for so long. We've never been able to get married. We've never been able to have equal rights. So in the process, we've developed these new and authentic 
kinship communities to support each other. And so by pushing for gay marriage, we're basically opting into the heteronormative ideal when maybe that's not even what we want, right? Do we really want those rights or would we rather create our own sort of set of, um, not rights necessarily, but ways of relating that are actually revolutionary instead of just fitting into the status quo? Um, which I thought was fascinating and I think probably not something that was well, you know, widely accepted by the gay community at the time. But I really, really appreciate those sorts of critiques and those sorts of, like, hold up, like, hold on a second. Maybe we should step back and reevaluate. Like, is this really the direction we want to be going? Are we walking forward way too quickly with blinders on? And maybe there's another way to do this. And I think this podcast asks these questions about psychedelics well. I definitely take, took issue with some of the ways that the information was delivered. Um, but of course, you know, when do we ever agree 100% with anything or 100% with anyone? And I'm going to unpack a lot of these things. Um, but first, I just want to say I recommend the podcast. I am considering reaching out to Lily K. Ross to see if she'd like to come on this podcast so that I can explore some of these questions with her directly. Um, but here are my thoughts. So the, the podcast exposes a lot of abuses of power around a lot of the mainstream, most popular, quote, psychedelic healers in the industry. So these are people who have like underground networks of trainings to train other people in how to be psychedelic therapists, which if you're not familiar, psychedelic therapy is basically therapy with psychedelics, right? So regular therapy is you go into a therapist's office, you talk to a therapist about your problems, you go home, you come back and you do it again. Psychedelic therapy is basically that. You're dealing with a lot of the same issues you would deal with in regular therapy, but in order to kind of break you down further and open up you open you up vulnerably and really like do what may take 5 years in regular therapy in you know, five sessions in psychedelic therapy, it adds different drugs depending on your needs um, to sort of help you break through those issues uh, quicker and more deeply. Of course, this is not for everyone, but a lot of people, especially those with PTSD or with a history of sexual trauma, um, often are really desperate for something new because regular talk therapy hasn't been working. So, Obviously, this is not legal or this has not been legal for a long time. And so there were lots of underground networks very much connected to sort of like independent, unconventional universities in the U.S., such as CIIS, um, where there were these underground psychedelic trainings, um, which often involved doing a lot of psychedelics before you could be certified. Um, and so this podcast exposes a lot of the like, I'll let you listen to it. I won't tell you all the details, but a lot of the insanity of a lot of these people that were sort of revered in the community, even by the hosts of this podcast for a long time. Um, and then it was really exposed that their methods and the methods that they were teaching others were wildly lacking in boundaries and were wildly lacking in professionalism and training and accountability um, and there was tons and tons of sexual abuse all over the place, therapists getting sexually involved with their patients after therapy, during therapy, it being covered up or not covered up or promoted, lots of physical touch without like the, you know, um, proper 
boundary setting before the drugs. So like drugs would be administered to the patient, which they agreed to. But then while they were on drugs, more drugs, different drugs were being offered to them, which they hadn't agreed to when they were sober, which is, of course, ridiculous and unethical. So a lot of really crazy things were exposed. And then the second part of the podcast um, was also uh, sort of critiquing a different aspect of this growing movement, which was specifically around legalization and the um, mainstreamization, making these things mainstream and putting them into a capitalist framework. So I've talked a lot here about the problem of trying to fit non-capitalist and non-patriarchal practices or traditions into capitalist and patriarchal structures. I think it's impossible to do this, and I think it's I think it's relatively unavoidable that we're going to try. Um, so I'm not going to say like, no, okay, I'm sorry, as like a you know capitalist patriarchal citizen of the world, you cannot participate in any kind of spiritual practice because it doesn't work to fit it into this context. I won't go so far as to say that because I, I mean that I would be a major hypocrite first of all, um, but second of all because we need spirituality and I think we need meeting. And I think as, as humans, we are starving for belief and meaning and often find it in all the wrong places. So I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to, we're seeking these things out, especially right now when a lot of our sort of other value structures, um, are collapsing. However, I think it's really, really important, if not imperative to recognize the problem of becoming a self-made shaman or trying to legalize psychedelics or put a ayahuasca ceremony into the context of a paid, quote, ceremony in Santa Monica, California, um, administered by a white person who went to Peru a few times. Or uh, it's very difficult to put the practice of astrology into a commodified um, way of doing it. Uh, I struggle with this constantly as someone who, I mean, even has a hard time considering myself an astrologer, but I teach astrology. It's partially actually, and you'll hear more about why, but why I really stopped giving astrology readings um, for money, but really at all. Um, I'm just very skeptical of this type of commodification of spiritual practices. I find it incredibly offensive that we as modern white people in the capitalist patriarchal worlds that think that we really even have the capacity to deprogram ourselves from the way that we've been raised in order to fully tap into like shamanic abilities, which really are being deeply, deeply in tuned with nature and being completely not distracted by technology or civilization or money or, or status or fame. Um, so the fact that we literally have people calling themselves like rock star shaman, it just makes my skin crawl. It makes me so fucking angry. Um, and again, like I understand that we're seeking these things out, uh, both on the healer side and on the sort of client side. But I think we really, really need to be responsible and um, honest about the problem. Like maybe that's the best we can do. Just be constantly aware of the conflict and the problem. So the second part of the podcast really deals in the question of 
is this really the right way forward? Is putting psychedelics in the context of therapy and of commodification and of measurement and of sort of mechanistic ways of thinking and measuring the right move? Is it not better actually to do these drugs with a family member or with a friend or with a loved one? Is giving all this power to the therapist really the right move? Which I think is also a really fucking amazing question. Um, So let me explore, consult my notes here. Um, So... Right, so is therapy the right domain for this? I guess I'll start there. I used to think absolutely yes. (laughs) Um, When it comes to drugs, like, of course, it would be best to put these sorts of heart, mind, um, body-opening substances in the regulated, structured, measured context of therapy. But that's assuming we trust the therapist and we trust the therapist's training and the humans who trained the therapist. And I have to say, like, I used to, I mean, I have had one fantastic therapeutic experience, regular therapy, which I've talked about a lot on the podcast. I've also had a lot of really, I want to say, like, relatively meaningless therapeutic experiences with relative, with um, regular therapists. I've had some pretty, pretty fucked up experiences with, quote, spiritual healers. Um, many, many, many. So on the one hand, I think maybe it's better for therapists, you know, who are, quote, regular therapists being trained in regular therapy, which does have a lot of rules and regulations and boards and certifying agencies, whereas a lot of these, quote, spiritual, quote, healers um, do not. And on the one hand, I think it's, you know, it's unfortunate with therapy that we can't hug our clients or we can't engage in sort of more nuanced boundaries. But also I've seen the inverse of this, which is that when there's not enough training, when there's not enough boundaries, when there's not enough structure, things can go really, really horribly wrong. And my experience plus the experiences that are recounted on this podcast um, illuminate that extremely, extremely clearly. And... It's an interesting thing. Like I used to, I really did used to trust. This is another really big question that came up for me or topic. I've had this problem my whole life that I assume that people who do good things in the world are quote, good people. And maybe good is not the right word, but like if you're gonna, if whoever wants to become a therapist or a doctor or a healer or like a massage therapist, like anything, or like a philanthropist or anyone that's doing these, quote, good, generous, like objectively good things in the world, that means that they're good people. And this has been disproven to me so many times um, that it's almost comical at this point because because I still get looped into it, because I still look at someone's public identity or someone's job or someone's public role in the world, and I assume that that's reflective of their personal, their personality and how they operate in their personal life. And it's just not true, which is a really upsetting 
thing uh, to realize. And again, I think something that I'm still in denial of sometimes, which doesn't mean across the board, right? There are, of course, good people who do good things, but people who do good things in the world are not automatically good and trustworthy and reliable, and they don't necessarily have the best of intentions, either um, consciously or unconsciously. Which also begs the question, like, which I'll get into a little bit more on the on this show, which is what sorts of people are drawn to being healers or therapists or doctors or social workers, et cetera, the quote, helping professions. Is there something to be said about those types of people and the psychology of those types of people that we can actually get some insight into their own personal psychology based on their desire to do these, quote, good things in the world? And then interestingly, the inverse of that If there's someone who's like head of drilling technology for Chevron, does that necessarily mean they're a bad person, right? Like maybe none of these things are actually correlated. Like that's just like a really smart, scientifically minded person with a lot of accolades and that's the job that's available to them based on their skill set. And like at home, they're a really generous person that like takes care of a garden, you know, like there just aren't these correlations necessarily between people's careers and jobs and roles in their personal life. Um, This is something I talk about when I teach astrology a lot because there are different um, angles in the chart that speak to the fact that these things are separate, right? So our public role is different from our Uh, first impression, which is different from who we are in our very intimate, vulnerable private life, which is different than who we are in relationship. Um, So there's all these different ways that our personality expresses itself. So the role we play in the public is definitely not the same as the role we play in our private life. And actually in astrology, they're literally opposite to each other. So whatever archetype you're embodying in your public life, the opposite is being embodied in your very intimate, vulnerable private life. So interesting things to think about. Um, But this initial question of like, is therapy the appropriate domain for this? To be fair, I've had very few psychedelic experiences. Um, Really just two. One was recently, which I haven't really talked about in depth, uh, but I'll talk a little bit about it now. (laughs) Um, It was just never... I've definitely done like smoked a lot of marijuana in my day. Uh, I drink alcohol. I did mushrooms when I was 20 one time when I lived in Amsterdam like 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Um, And I had never done them again. I didn't have anything against them. I totally supported them, um, but it just never really appealed to me. And I sort of had this idea that like, I was probably moving through the world in a relatively psychedelic way already. Uh, which I think this most recent um, psilocybin experience really did show me that like I not as at, in as an extreme or intense way, but I really do feel like I try the best I can to be mindful and quiet enough to tap into these realms as much as possible without the drugs. Um, but when I did them recently, I did them with someone who I'm very close to, who was sober, who took care of me, who had experience doing them. And I remember thinking even during the experience, like, oh my God, I'm so grateful that I'm doing this with you for two reasons. One, because I'm a mess. Like, <laughs> I'm just like snot running down my face and I'm like in a ball and like everything is a mess and I have to like crawl to the toilet. This is so intense. Um, 
but also because, and like that would be really embarrassing or feel really vulnerable to do with someone, even with like, I think even to the therapist who I really loved and I had a really good experience with, I would never feel that comfortable being that undone with her as I was with the person that I was doing this with. And then also maybe had I been with that therapist or been with another therapist, and a lot of these people who are doing this psychedelic healing, they're doing it with therapists they've never met before. They don't have an ongoing relationship with them. They don't have a rapport. They're just new people in the room who they've never met. And then they take these drugs that just totally fucking unravel you. There was someone in the in the podcast that explained her experience with doing MDMA therapy was basically just like, that the drug sort of like cuts you open and exposes all your arteries. And because there was only a few sessions with these therapists, they just sort of leave you there on the operating table with your skin open and your organs exposed. Like it's really intense, the level of vulnerability that you're put into. Um, And so maybe had I done it with a therapist, especially one I never met before, but even one that I knew very well, would I have even been comfortable unraveling to the extent that I did? would that experience have been as beneficial as the experience I had with someone that I knew? Of course, I know that not all of us have someone like that to do psychedelics with. So I would say that's probably the vast majority of people, Um, especially people who have suffered from a lot of PTSD or sexual trauma. Like the point of a lot of the point of them doing the therapy is because they are really afraid to get close to people. They have all these trust issues And so they go into this, you know, assumed, structured, organized environment to take these drugs um, and, of course, have their trust and uh, their boundaries abused and disregarded and often end up worse than they were to begin with. But I understand, like, that that's what they're seeking out. They're seeking out an environment in which they're safe. But I really wonder if they are. Um, And I don't have a solution for this. I know it's annoying sometimes to like critique something and not offer a solution, but because this is the podcast of asking questions, um, I just think it's it's a valuable question to ask. Like, is therapy the right domain? I mean, you think about therapy, what is therapy? Therapy is replacing close, intimate, trusting relationships. Like we should have that without the therapist, right? Like we all deserve that. Um, We all have a birthright for that. But instead of organizing that in a a natural and organic way, we have to pay a therapist $250 to like play friend or play mother or play romantic confidant. um, And then you leave and like, oh no, don't even think about texting me or calling me and like, we can't touch. Like it's a very superficial, artificial way of doing things, which is not to say it's not helpful. Therapy saved my life and it can be amazing if with the right person at the right time and done properly. But it's pretty weird. It's a pretty unnatural structure to begin with. So then add drugs to that. And yeah, I just don't know um, if it's the right context, not to mention then the commodification piece, which is also a strange overlay to put on something like this. Spirituality was never commodified. I mean, nothing was commodified. It was just a regular part of life. Um, And now we're exchanging money to enter into a very like non-monetary, non-commodified space. Um, And I also just don't know if that's the best. And if we put 
drugs and spirituality within the context of capitalism. So this podcast is basically saying like, what is the, what's going to be the difference between this and regular pharmaceuticals? So if psychedelic drugs become um, uh, owned and operated by the same institutions that own and operate regular pharmaceuticals, like we know where that went, right? And MAPS, to their credit, who are, you know, trying, I think, to do the right thing as far as legalizing MDMA, it seems are, one, cutting a lot of corners as far as, like, safety and oversight is concerned, which this podcast exposes. But also, um, Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, has openly stated that he wants this to become mainstream and just hired, like, a former CEO of what is it, like Moderna or one of these big pharmaceutical companies to be the CEO of MAPS. So there's a lot of intermingling here with um, these psychedelic drugs and the mainstream pharmaceutical industry. And we know the abuses and the lies and the power that is infused within the pharmaceutical corporations. And do we really want them to be controlling the psychedelic drugs as well? Another question that came to me as I was listening to this podcast, which I guess could maybe be considered a critique potentially, is so because I haven't had that many experiences with psychedelics personally, I also have had friends who have had some really, really, really traumatic, terrible experiences within the realm of psychedelics, both working with, quote, healers or shamans, quote, shamans, um, or therapists, but also just engaging it in personal use. Um, and just to go back briefly, when I say, like, is therapy the right domain, I've also seen a ton of really bad things happen when it's just friends who use the drugs casually and bad things happen there as well. So again, like, don't really know what the solution is. I'm just asking some questions. But anyway, this other thing I started to think about is I've experienced abuses of power in the spiritual domain, the spiritual healer domain, a lot. Not necessarily involving drugs, but involving other forms of tapping into these sort of higher states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness, or just spirituality in general. Again, like psychedelics, like Akashic Records, like, I mean, and I love these things. These things are a part of my life, but that doesn't mean that I've had squeaky clean experiences with teachers or um, astrologers or guides or healers, like far from it. I've had more bad experiences, honestly, than I have had good experiences, um, which makes it really, really challenging and frustrating for me to be even a part of this, um, world and this domain, because I feel extremely alienated from it. And I don't think that there's anywhere near the type of training and responsibility and critical thinking that would be necessary to carry these things out responsibly. Um, Anyway, I digress. So another question that I had when listening to this was that, like, you know that thing that happens when people discuss prostitution and sex work, where they get all up in arms about the inequality that's present in that industry and the abuses of power that take place and the lack of protection for people who are sex workers, and that's part of the reason um, you know, we should either legalize sex work or get rid of it entirely. I started to think that about um, this as well, these drugs, like, oh, wow, okay, 
So there are abuses of power within the realm of therapy and therapeutic institutions across the board, and yet we're really only willing to talk about it when it involves drugs. Same as we're only really willing to talk about abuses of power when it comes to work, of course, which there are, those are omnipresent, you know, like, uh, hello, all of capitalism and big corporations not protecting their workers, like Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not really willing, we don't really talk about those things very much, but oh, like add sex or drugs to the equation and all of a sudden we're really, we're willing to have these conversations. Um, and that sort of pisses me off and I wish the podcast, uh, I know they can't do everything and I know the point of this podcast was simply to talk about this growing movement of psychedelic therapy, but I really feel like we're missing an opportunity when we talk about abuses of power when it relates to drugs or sex to be like, this is just one example of, a, of an abuse of power that exists across the board. And I feel like by only talking about it when we talk about drugs or sex is actually just making drugs and sex more taboo than it is actually helping or healing or solving the problems that people are trying to solve, which is not about sex and drugs, right? It's about responsibility. It's about community. It's about... Um, uh, discretion and discernment and uh, professionalism and accountability. Uh, and we're not talking about those, right? We're just like hyper-focused on the psychedelics or hyper-focused on the sex. And I feel like that's the wrong approach. And um, I think it's uh, well overdue that we speak about inequality and abuses of power as they exist in the entirety of our culture. This is not just something worth talking about when the therapist gives the client drugs. Like real harm has and is done constantly within the realm of therapy, regardless of whether or not it involves drugs or even sex, right? There's also like sexual therapy. Um, and it's a big scandal and it's super taboo and we talk about it all the time. But it's like if I wanted to go to anyone to talk about the abuses of power that I witness in the astrological community, it's like no one wants to give me the time of day, you know? Like, yes, I was a consenting adult. Yes, to some extent, I had the ability to walk away from things. I should have been more discerning. All of that's true. I've talked about that extensively on the podcast. But at the same time, like, it's worth having a conversation about the professionalism and boundaries and training of, you know, these spiritual healers who are charging all sorts of money for their trainings and their readings, and they have no right to do that. I mean, I learned from I learned how to give therapeutic readings to other people from someone that had never been to therapy themselves. That's not okay. Um, but there doesn't really seem to be a way to talk about these things, again, unless it's like super scandalous and, you know, I slept with the teacher or they administered psychedelics. Like, then there's a case. But otherwise, nobody wants to talk about it. And I think that's unfortunate. So moving into sort of the second part of this podcast is speaking more specifically about therapists and the realm of healing. There's a really great book that I have mentioned on the podcast before and that I'd read portions of, but I hadn't actually sat down to read the whole thing. So I finally did that. It's called Power in the Helping Professions. It's a pretty old book. It's uh, written by Adolf Guggenbull Craig, I think I pronounce it. And it's a really small book, 
Y'all know how much I love small books that just get to the point and say everything eloquently, um, but this is definitely a small book, an easy read. I read it in a couple of days. And um, the point of the book is basically to talk of the psychological makeup of people or most people who enter into the, the helping professions, he calls them. Uh, mostly the book is about therapists. He is a therapist himself, an analyst, as they used to call them and still do sometimes. Um, but he also speaks about doctors and social workers and priests, uh, which really, you know, and just add like other forms of spiritual leaders in there. And yeah, that pretty much sums it up. So people that want to do good in the world, right? People that want to help people, people that want to heal people. Is there something about the psychological makeup of these people that can give us some insight about why there are so many abuses of power and problems that can arise in this domain? Um, which I think if, if not, if all of us haven't experienced something like this, we certainly know someone who has. So why is this so prominent and prevalent? So Guten, Guggenball, I've never been able to say this properly, Guggenball, Craig, uh, tries to answer the Guggenball, I'm sorry. Ugh, German. Okay. He tries to answer this question um, by uh, talking about a lot of ideas from Jung, which of course I love. Um, and so he talks about this idea that Jung spoke about, which is that our shadow or a shadow is formed in direct relationship to the ideal. Okay. So this was a fucking revelation and epiphany for me when I realized this. So what that means is that let's say we do something wrong, but we really didn't mean to hurt someone, you know, or we really don't want to hurt someone. We really love someone. We really care about someone. And so we do something that at the time, consciously above ground feels like we're protecting them. But by doing so, we're lying to them about something. So we're doing all these things that are like, no, but I wanted to protect you. No, but I thought this was the right thing to do. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. But in the meantime, the shadow expression of that thing is that we lied to them and we didn't tell them a truth, the truth, thereby potentially hurting them much more later on when and if they find out. So he's trying to say that basically by way of trying to help people and heal people, the more we have that desire the more shadow is formed on the opposite pole. So this can also be seen when if we look at something like a split archetype. So I'm sure you guys have heard the concept of like the wounded healer, for example. And all archetypes are, are like this. So if you've, um, if you know astrology, especially if you've learned it from me, I try to talk about this all the time. All archetypes have both healthy and unhealthy or like highest octave, uh, as Stephen Forrest calls it, and shadow expressions. Right? So Aries or Mars, this archetype contains both courage but also cowardice. Right, So the, the archetype of Cancer, for example, contains both the mother and the daughter, um, both uh, vulnerability and also um, walled-off high sensitivity. So all of these archetypes have two different poles. So the archetype of the healer also contains the archetype of the wound. Um, and so in astrology, we learn about this through uh, Chiron, who was literally the wounded healer uh, character, a mythological character. And so if the wound and the healer are part of the same archetype, that it is in our being to want to contain within us both poles of any given archetype at any time. 
So we, within us, contain both the wounded one and the healer. We have both the healer and the wound within within us, right? We have both the archetype of the um, brave one and the cowardice one. We contain both. The archetype contains both. And so throughout our lives, we're sort of looking to bring those into wholeness and oneness, oneness with each other. So Carl Jung was all about this, about the, the center, right? The center of the mandala, the authentic, individuated, whole self, which contains both the ideal and the shadow. And so throughout our lives, we're constantly moving toward things and making decisions that reveal, like it's much easier to, of course, um, embody the ideal, but not always, right? This is also what like um, I think a lot of guru culture is about. We project our ideal, we project, project our inner God onto the guru or onto the leader or onto the teacher because we aren't yet ready to embody that within ourselves. And so to think of our lives as a constant journey toward, most, a lot of the time unconscious journey toward uh, resolving those opposite poles of the archetype within us, conscious and unconscious, healthy and unhealthy, um, ideal and shadow. And so what he talks about, uh, I'm just going to call him Adolf because I can't keep saying the last name. Um, what he talks about as far as healers is that a lot of the time, those who decide to be therapists or priests or spiritual leaders or psychedelic therapists um, or social workers or doctors are seeking the fullness and wholeness of that archetype by completing the circle of the wounded part of the archetype through the patients. And so he basically actually says, like, if you have the desire, someone has the desire to be a therapist or a doctor or work in the helping professions, it's actually a good sign because what you're trying to do is to merge the archetype, merge the healer archetype with the wounded archetype. So we could just ignore it entirely, right? Like the fact that people are trying to do this is a good sign, but the problem is that they're trying to solve and complete the sort of archetypal circle by way of projection, right? Same as, again, the guru thing. Like I'm, you could be trying to solve for the full archetype um, of yourself and of your ideal and of your potential and of your own inner gold or God by looping in a teacher or a guru instead of seeing that you contain this within yourself. And um, so, Perhaps that people who become helpers, healers, etc., are subconsciously or unconsciously looking to complete the archetype. But the problem is if they're not using the therapy themselves, if they're not using their clients as a mirror to their own shadow and to their own wound, that the further they pursue the ideal of healer and helper, the farther they get along the path, the more experience they have, the more accolades they have, the more praise they get the more money they get, the farther and farther away they get to their own inner wound and their own inner shadow. And so in a way, a lot of people who desire to become healers and helpers and therapists and doctors are doing so unconsciously as a way to resolve the archetype. But if they're not capable of resolving it within themselves, they are just perpetually projecting the wound onto the patient. So the patient's the sick one. The patient's the one with the shadow. The therapist has dealt with all their shit. The therapist doesn't have a shadow. The therapist has figured their shit out. That's why they're a healer. But of course, this isn't true. 
Um, I highly recommend becoming friends with therapists too, um, because I have a lot of friends who are therapists or who are in the process of becoming therapists, and I love them very much, but they're not perfect, right? They're not infallible. They have their own, a lot of their own shit going on. And there's no such thing as expecting a therapist or a healer or any of these people to be perfect. I think this is a a huge mistake that we make, and it's partially because we're projecting our own inner healer onto them. We think we don't have the capacity to be a healer of ourselves or others ourselves because we're so broken, we're so wounded. We're the perfect match for the opposite side of that archetype, right? It's like the savior and the one who wants to be saved. Like, how many times do we find that dynamic in relationships? We're just magnets for each other. So the person that goes into therapy, the person that has sexual abuse, the person with PTSD, of course they're wounded. They're so unbelievably wounded. And the therapist or the healer comes into the picture and says, let me save you, let me heal you. I'm the healed one. But is that really what's happening? Is the therapist actually not more inclined to have the patient continue to embody the wound so that the therapist, one, stays in business, but also doesn't have to deal with and confront their own shadow? Okay, so I'm gonna read a couple of quotes from Power in the helping professions, um, just to speak through the author's words, which might be clearer than mine. So basically he says, the physician becomes a charlatan precisely because he wants to heal as many people as possible. The clergyman becomes a hypocrite and false prophet precisely because he wants to bring people to their true faith. And the psychotherapist becomes an unconscious charlatan and false prophet, although he works day and night on becoming more conscious, right? So the shadow is formed in direct relationship to the ideal. In these professions, the problem of the split archetype appears. Whether Whether the polarity be healthy, sick, conscious, unconscious, socially sick, socially healthy. The power-hungry doctor, the psychotherapist acting as a false prophet and quack, the social worker as an inquisitor, are all related in their archetypal problem complex. All are fascinated by the healer-patient archetype, suffer from the two poles of this archetype, can function as the wounded healer, and may repress one pole of the archetype, project it, and thus fall into certain forms of the power drive. The therapist increasingly falls victim to the shadow phenomenon. He becomes less effective as an analyst, but believes that his effectiveness is growing. He deceives himself more and more, but he continues to be respected as a specialist, becomes neither unhappy nor neurotic nor psychotic, and ultimately he will die as a mentally sound, socially adjusted and successful individual. The analyst who is no longer open, who has integrated his shadow, so to speak, partially, partly by living it out unconsciously and partly through projection, can no longer stimulate his patients to develop an understanding of individuation. Young points out again and again that an analyst can bring his patients no further than he himself has gone. Amen. What's that quote? You can only know someone as deeply as they know themselves. Um... At the end of the day, not only is the lack of integration of the healer's shadow hurting the healer themselves, but of course also the patient. Because the point of the therapy no longer becomes healing for both parties. That's not the intention. The intention becomes power and control, which this book basically describes that in order to continue to ignore the shadow, in order to continue projecting the shadow onto the patient, this intense power dynamic is created. 
And that's really what happens in these sorts of scenarios. That's why we talk about abuses of power, because the therapist, the healer, the priest, whatever, whoever we're talking about, even the doctor, is in a position of power and has the ability to um, direct the, uh, the interaction with the client, direct the interaction with the patient in a way that furthers his own intentional or untentional, conscious or unconscious desires. And so I feel like in listening to Cover Story, in reading this book, in you listening to this podcast, I hope that we can all start to see that we may be lying to ourselves about several things. One, that people who do good in the world and who are therapists and healers are trained, are conscious, are aware, have been through healing themselves, and are overall, quote, good. And this isn't to say that a lot of them aren't. Like, of course, there are good therapists out there, but I think that they are few and far between, which is also what this book points out. Like, he says, I know this is a big downer. <laughs> um, this isn't exactly optimistic or, um, like, a, you know, exciting book to read. Um, and, of course, there are some therapists who really do the work to understand their own shadow and have the client mirror that back to them and also make it clear to the client or to the patient that that's what's happening, right? If you have a therapist or a, quote, healer that's, like, not admitting to and not forthright and not honest about their own um, imperfection and their own journey of dealing with their own psychology, like, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. If anyone claims that they have their shit figured out 100%, they absolutely don't. Um, so I hope that we can just do a little bit better at recognizing this. And then secondly, 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 um, work to develop our discernment, which is definitely a word and a topic that I try to talk about a lot, partially because it's something that I've really struggled with. I always like trust in the goodness of strangers and people who are doing amazing work in the world. I put them on pedestals and I idealize them. And I expect that the caliber of their intelligence and the caliber of work that they're doing in the world reflects the caliber of their emotional and psychological intelligence and awareness. But it just is not true. And I don't really know how many times I need to learn that lesson in order to fucking learn it. Um, I actually, interestingly, had an astrology reading many years ago uh, with the guy that recommended this book to me um, many years ago, who said that like part of my purpose in life actually was to continue to be betrayed in ways like this through like abuses of power in order to help me to develop my discernment further so that when and if I decide to work with people on like big projects in life or really work to entrust people in my personal life, that I will have a lot of um, experience in order to do so. Basically experience being betrayed, being shown that I'm an idiot uh, for trusting people who shouldn't be trusted or for, you know, holding people to higher standards than they deserve, which is a really depressing realization. Like I get it. We, we, I think especially those of us, you guys who listen to this podcast and me, like we're so hungry for a different sort of world and a different story where people protect each other and trust each other and are generous and don't act transactionally in relationships, um, at least not in unfair ways, and really deal with power in conscious, healthy ways. And 
we have this utopian idea of the future, at least I do, where people work together and love each other and can trust each other. And when shit gets weird, because it always will, someone's going to get hurt, problems arise, that we all agree to a way of working through those things. And I think we all, again, because it's our fucking birthright, we want that so, so badly that it's blinding, right? It's like rose-colored goggles for the tribe or whatever. Um, we so want to believe in the goodness of people and the generosity of people. And of course, like if I'm this self-critiquing and if I take my responsibility so seriously, especially in regard to helping someone or offering support or... Um, being an astrology teacher, whatever it is, like if you assume that everyone else operates like that, but they just don't. And I feel like just perpetually disappointed by that, which doesn't mean I'm pessimistic. It doesn't mean that I think these ideals are impossible, but they're certainly going to require way more time and patience and work and discernment and disappointment than I think I was willing to admit before. And thing, things that seem like the better option, like non-monogamy, like spirituality, like responsible ecology, like uh, anything, anything that's unconventional, <laughs> community, tribe, we have to be really careful about not glorifying and idealizing those things either. That's another lesson, right? We can it's, we don't just need discernment about people. We need discernment about ideas. Like, yes, we should have equality for trans people. Yes, gay people should have equal rights. Yes, people who are non-monogamous should be as accepted into society as people who are monogamous. Anyone should be able to eat whatever diet they want to eat. People should be able to engage in spiritual practices and do psychedelic drugs in a healthy, uh, protected way. But it's not simple. It's just not fucking simple. And the scale that we live at especially, especially doesn't help at all. In fact, it makes so many things virtually impossible. Because how can we trust the kindness of strangers around the world, right? These things are just unreasonable. You know, I this whole vaccine argument, I feel like exposed the problem of scale. I feel like a lot of people who are like, I'm not going to protect a bunch of strangers who eat a bunch of Cheetos, like when I'm not going to get very sick. But what if that person who has a food problem or who's obese, who has a lot of health problems, is in your direct circle. Like, maybe you would change your mind about the vaccine. Like, it's it's a, we need to get back to a smaller scale in order to even comprehend uh, a lot of these concepts as it relates to trust and um, dependability and generosity and egalitarianism. Like, we're never going to be egalitarian as, like, the tri with the tribe of the world. That's absurd. We can't protect every environment um, we can't, you know, support uh, every environment around the world. We can only do so in our own backyard and with our own, you know, small group of 100 or 150 at most. So I guess I'll, I'll end by just sharing another reflection that I had, you know, listening to Cover Story, which I guess I've sort of expanded upon a bit already. But this way that we have grown to see, of course, everything in black and white, but with these attitudes of like, you're with me or against me. And it really struck me listening to this podcast and also sharing the podcast um, with other people who were very pro-psychedelics, very pro-legalization, 
um, very pro-psychedelic therapy. I mean, if you're like an intelligent, conscious person, it's hard not to be. Like, of course, we should make these things more accessible. I know a lot of us have had really meaningful, life-changing, life-altering experiences with these drugs. But again, the shadow is constellated in direct relationship to the ideal. In addition to that, there have been a lot of serious, serious harms that have been done. And people have died. Many people have died. And if they haven't died, they've been abused. Their, their psychological problems have gotten worse. Or they just have had experiences that have turned them off from modes of healing that would otherwise maybe have helped them had they been able to work with someone who could actually fucking be trusted. I mean, some of these therapists had these patients who were part of clinical trials move into their house with them afterwards and develop a sexual relationship with them. I mean, it's mind-boggling what goes on. And I think we have to be honest about the nuance of this stuff. A lot of non-monogamous relationships are avoidance of intimacy at best and abusive at worst. Like, these ideals are complex. Everything is complex. Everything has a positive and negative pole. Everything has a shadow. And I think we've been programmed through the media and through our culture to see it as like you're with me or against me and in black and white terms and left and right. And I think we need to work really hard to question ourselves about that at all costs. I've had truly meaningful and amazing experiences with spirituality and with psychedelics, but I'm fully conscious and aware of the harms that can be done. And I have to somehow operate in that middle ground. I have to operate in the gray area. Otherwise, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I'm just not realistic. And I also don't even think it's that interesting, right? It's not very interesting for me to just like reject astrology because so much of it is bullshit, which it is. Like, I totally understand why people think astrology is dumb because a lot of people who do it are dumb. I'm sorry, but it's dumb. It's silly. It's superficial. It's basically side of the road, psychic crap and predictive crap. It's just dumb. And it doesn't actually help people get to know themselves better. But I do think that there's a form of astrology that's wildly enriching and stimulating and infused with archetypal psychology and mythology that's incredibly helpful for helping us get to know each other, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves. I think there are absolutely forms of psychedelic healing which can be life-changing and have been. I was just watching the George Carlin documentary and he talks about how he took acid one time and it's totally what provoked his shift from clean-shaven, you know, suit-and-tie, squeaky-clean comedian to the comedian that everyone knows and reveres today. Like, psychedelics can do amazing things. But that doesn't mean they always do. They can do awful things, too, like anything. So... I think we need to train ourselves if, you know, if you're someone who hears about this story, this podcast cover story and like, oh no, are they just, they're just trying to prevent the legalization. They're just trying to prevent, prevent progress and we really need to move forward in this and we can't afford to have these drugs demonized any further than they are. I understand that perspective, but what happens if we ignore the genuine concern and the genuine harm that's done because if those things are exposed, then what's the likelihood this stuff will be just shut down forever? Like, we need people to ask tough questions. And in Power in the Helping Professions, Adolf 
Guggenball Craig um, also says that the best way to sort of counteract the charlatan, power-hungry, shadow-avoidant nature of the healer is to have that healer surround themselves not with colleagues who are equally as capable of rationalizing and um, analyzing their way out of their bullshit, but to surround themselves with people who are not in the same profession, who are willing to call them out on their bullshit, which I thought was so great. Like, that's his solution. His solution to the problem is to surround yourself with, like, a certain kind of fiery eros that challenges you by way of friendship. And I think this is a great... um, this is just great advice for all of this, right? We need to surround ourselves with people who are willing to be like, mm, really, is that is that really true? Or is that just the story you wanna tell yourself? Is that the story that makes the most sense? And I've said this before, but the smarter we are, the more capable we are of like feeding ourselves a line or a fucking novel worth of bullshit. I spent 10 years of my life rationalizing my bullshit. It's so easy to do. And so, and I still, of course, of course I still do it, but I really do surround myself with people who are willing to call me out on it. Um, And I want that and I crave that. This whole safe space, your feelings are valid stuff. It's like that is just one portion of of what's necessary. But ultimately we need to be strong enough to trust our emotions and trust ourselves enough to be told that we're full of shit. Um, So find yourself those friends, find yourself that community, and practice doing this on yourself. I think the more we do this to ourselves, the more capable we're doing this for others as well. Um, Because it's really easy to think that you're calling someone else out on their bullshit when really you're just projecting. So it's definitely a skill that takes time and practice and collaboration to develop. So here's to that. Here's to developing and collaborating with each other on calling things into question and uh, revealing the nuance and revealing the gray area and making sure that whatever it is that we idolize or wherever we have ideals, that we're not inadvertently projecting or avoiding the shadow of it because we want it so bad that we're not being honest with ourselves about the fact that maybe we need to take a slightly different path or maybe that's really not the person we should be working with and maybe that spiritual guru or that psychedelic therapist or this um, intense, you know, insatiating type of desire to become a healer is full of something more complex than just wanting to help people. Chances are something is to be found in the shadow. I'm going to play you out with a cover of TLC's Waterfalls by Ten Fei, which is definitely not necessarily about power and spirituality, um, but is certainly about sort of chasing potentials that um, we're not ready for or are not right for us and uh, idealizing things that are going to cause us or the people we love harm in the end. Because, of course, this... Um, thing that we do exists in a myriad of different forms. And if you would like to support this podcast financially, uh, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World is supporter and subscriber supported. 
Uh, there's never been ads. There will never be ads. So the only way that I can make money on this project is through your donations. The way that you can do that is going to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A, K-A-A-T-S dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. You can become a free subscriber. And when you do that, you get access to everything you do when you become a paid subscriber, <laughs> to be honest. Um, nothing is behind a paywall, but for those of you that have the means that find this content valuable, kind of like public radio, your donation helps me um, keep this project going and keep it ad-free and help me keep the lights on, um, and you help to allow other people who may not have the means to support um, as well. So it's five bucks a month. Uh, when you sign up, you get access to email notifications when I send out podcast episodes. You can actually comment on the podcast episodes now, which is really cool, so we can actually engage about the topics. You can ask questions, you can share your thoughts. I encourage you to do that. It's really nice to connect with all of you on the other side of this microphone because I'm just talking into space. Um, so that's really cool. I have open threads that I post where you can interact with each other, uh, introduce yourselves on various topics. Um, I'm releasing writing and poetry. There's a lot there already. And I also brought back something called Minerva's Muse, which if you've been listening to the show for a long time and you supported me on Patreon back in the day, which is now defunct, replaced with Substack, I used to do this thing where I sent out weekly columns of inspiration. So I would share something to read, like a piece of artwork to look at, maybe something to cook, maybe some music or a podcast to listen to. And I would send those out to everybody that donated. It became wildly overwhelming to do that every week. Um, and so I, I discontinued it, but I've actually really missed it. So I've decided to bring it back on Substack. Um, it won't be weekly anymore. It'll actually just happen when I'm inspired. But of course, a column of inspiration should only go out when I'm inspired to put it out. Uh, so I just sent out one, and um, I also provided a link to all 23 volumes of the previous Minerva's Muses that I sent out on Patreon, Patreon years ago. So that's there as well. You'll find all of this on Substack. Uh, and again, the link is anyakotz.substack.com. Please sign up for free, or if you have the means to donate, I really appreciate it. Because again, nobody likes ads, um, but this definitely takes a lot of time and energy. So I appreciate it, whether you're just sending episodes to your friends, spending time with me, um, donating your time by listening to the show, telling people about it, sending me feedback, subscribing on um, Substack. I appreciate all of you in whatever form you decide to support. So enjoy the song Waterfalls by Ten Fei. And I will catch you next time. My lonely mother gazing out of a window Staring at a sun that she just can't touch If at any time I'm in a jam She'll be by my side But I don't Realize I hurt her so much But all the praying just ain't helping at all Cause I can't seem to keep myself out of trouble I make my money the best way I know how Another busker lying cold in the gutter Chasing waterfalls Please stick to the rivers And the lakes that you're used to I know that you're gonna have it Your way or nothing
at all But I think you're moving too fast Moving too fast Little precious has a natural obsession For temptation but I just can't see You give me love and that my body can handle All that I can say is baby it's good to me go and take a glimpse in the mirror but I never recognize my own face my health is fading and I can't understand three letters take me to my final resting place 